Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Brittany Edmonds, and I'm very happy to be speaking today with poet-critic Dr. Evie Shockley. We will be talking about her newest poetry collection, Suddenly We. Thank you for being here today, Dr. Shockley. It's truly a pleasure. Well, I wanted to get started with a kind of easy question. I often start my interviews with questions about titles. I've been really struck by the title of your poetry collection, just the sort of sound of it, Suddenly We. Um, to me, it's perfectly balanced, kind of rhythmically and spiritually. And I was curious about both how you came to that title and the sort of work that it does for you sort of conceptually and otherwise. Thank you. Yeah, titles are a great place to start, um, as I'm always telling my students. Um, suddenly, we, I, with with selecting the title, I followed a pattern that, that I've been using since... I think my my first full length collection, which is I, I sort of dig around in the poems and find a phrase buried in them that somehow lifted out of context takes on a lot of additional possibilities and um, possibilities that will resonate with what I feel I have started to discover about the collection as I'm putting it together. And uh, so I think suddenly we is a phrase that appears in um, one of my quote unquote pandemic poems in the book, uh, An Inoculation Against Innocence. Um, There it's it's kind of gesturing towards um, the suddenness of the pandemic and and our responses to it. But um, out of context, the phrase suddenly we um, began to enable me to gesture towards um, a lot of the larger concerns of the book, which have to do with um, the idea of collectivity, um, the what the things that facilitate the forming of a we and the things that are obstacles or challenges to um, the construction of uh, collectives and belonging and uh, and solidarity and those kinds of things. Um, there's a tongue-in-cheek nature to the title because, uh, in my experience, nothing there's nothing sudden about the forming of uh, of collectivity. Uh, a lot of the the political collectivities that I'm thinking about are formed um, very painstakingly over time. Um, and even belonging in more strictly identitarian senses or, um, you know, senses that may seem to be natural, like biological family or even chosen family. These these groupings are are shaped and built over over time, um, but it would be you know it sometimes feels sudden when it all falls into place. Um, so suddenly we, it, it came from that source and, and opened up um, those, those 
themes that run through the book. Yeah, I like that phrase you just use. It feels sudden when it all falls into place because, you know, I hear you about collectivity being a kind of labor, but also there's something in your title. I mean, I just love saying it. I don't know if you enjoy saying your title over and over again, um, but I know I wrote to you and said there's a kind of recognition I experience every time I say it. And so there's something, there's something right about it in terms of what it feels like to be in concert with another or others or just to be more than oneself. Um, mm -hmm. But in that vein, I'm kind of curious about, and you've already gestured towards this, I'm, I'm curious about the we in the title, just because as you've said about the collection, um, it's just full of so many uh, engagements with others, right? It's It has plentiful epigraphs, it's you know highly intertextual. Um, there's a kind of deep and generous curiosity about art, about other artists, about other people, about other places, about history. Um, and so I wonder if you could tell us about the we. Absolutely. I mean, in the the very first thing I should say then is that there there is not a we that that um, exists sort of from beginning to end of the book. Um, so a lot of the poems are thinking about um, how to put this. A lot of the poems are thinking about the the inverse of the critique of the we that we often hear. So um, there's a moment when we say critics and thinkers in black study um, began to push back against the, the presumed we of a lot of the national or official narratives that, that we live with, right? So um, who is this we of we the people? Um, who is this we of we all think X or Y, right? Um, I'm interested in a we that invites you in and and how to how to articulate that invitation, um, what prevents people from accepting that invitation. If I say a we that sounds like a black we, but its blackness is um, based in black politics, like a black radical tradition, uh, which is an oppositional stance rather than a, a purely cultural stance. Um, what stops someone from, from taking part in, if not ownership of, but, but taking part in that we, what makes someone feel excluded from that? Um, and, and what, what ways can I articulate that we that might make more people feel like they can, um, can be within that that body, right? Um, so that's that's kind of the way I'm approaching we during the poem. Uh, there are poems that don't use the we. There are I poems, um, but in those cases, I'm thinking about how um, the 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 sort of uh, construction of the self connects to the way one feels. Uh, able or not able to be in in community with or uh, belonging to other other groups of people, right? So, um, in the in the largest scale, I'm interested in what it takes to get to a we that is we, the creatures of the globe, uh, of the earth, um, in a very uh, ecological sense, like 
I think it's it's that we that we have to understand ourselves as part of before we are going to um, be able to survive <laughs> uh, in the in the long long term. Um, but there's a lot of stops along the way between here and there. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, you know, part of me wants to ask about about whether or not you think that's idealistic and whether or not that's something you would run from. Because I mean, you sort of talked about the the black power movement and how it might sort of how it's oppositional. And so I'm curious about about the group that doesn't exclude, for example. You know what I mean? If you think about Toni Morrison, she said that all of her books are about basically about how in order to define yourself, you have to it, it mostly is sort of relying on a kind of exclusion and the marking of others. And she explores that across all of her novels. And so I'm curious for you if that that sort of boundless we, you know, that, you know, boundaryless we, do you think that's idealistic or you think that's the labor of the artist, idealistic or not? I do think it's idealistic. I mean, it's not like I think I'm going to live to see it. Um, for sure. You know, but, um, but how to put this? It's not that it's not that I think uh, trying to conceive of a boundaryless we, so to speak, um, is practical or, you know, like something that that, again, I'm going to live to see is the point. I think for me, I'm very conscious of not only the deepness and the 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 stubbornness the intransigence of the the kinds of divides that break us into into we's against they's right um i'm very clear about that i'm also very very clear about the things that cause us even those of us who would like to see um solidarity across greater groups of people and and um even larger groupings than that we cling to our we's our smaller we's for comfort for safety for reasons that are very uh important and um to give up the the comfort of that that say black we that's 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 about black people being in their spaces, right? You know, you have to really imagine what what are the circumstances, what are the incentives for giving up that that space? Uh, as hard as we have to work to 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 create even that we, right? I mean, um, I think it's it's a it's an aspiration that really is an invitation to think about the things that we have in common, even as we think about the things that divide us. And to recognize that the things that divide us are harming us. They, they are the things that harm us. And um, the globe is giving us some reasons to, uh, to understand ourselves as a, as a we of, of earthlings, uh, if nothing else. Um, and hopefully hopefully we'll we'll get moving up in that direction that uh, that we can keep this planet habitable yeah no thank you and you know i didn't mean a idealistic in a, in a pejorative way and so i'm happy the direction you took because um 
Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I've seen you sort of expand what we could mean in the classroom, for example, or elsewhere in the profession. Um, and so I do think there's a place, there's a way that ideals can guide sort of everyday life. Um, and, you know, whatever our political or otherwise aspirations might be. Um, so I really appreciate that response. But I want to kind of pivot to thinking about the sort of first sequence in your book. You kind of begin the collection in high style. Um, the first sequence is titled Amma's Orchestral Vision or Farther Out. And it um, takes its inspiration from a teacher and visual artist, Alma Thomas, uh, in her painting Starry Night and the Astronauts. And in the sequence, um, for folks who haven't sort of don't have the collection yet, but are going to go buy it after this, after listening to this interview, um, the sequence contains uh, just an astonishing variety of poetic styles. Uh, there are lyrics, there are calligrams, there's ephastic poetry, there's sound poetry, there are litanies. And across all of it, there's a sense of play and innovation. And so I wonder, you know, I wonder several things. First, I, I want to think about the sort of term avant-garde in relation to your work and, and what that might mean to you. And then sort of secondly, I'm interested in the question of tradition, right? Clearly, you see yourself as sort of being connected to all kinds of makers, thinkers, historical actors, people, um, and even just sort of everyday folks who, who we may not be able to lay claim to as much as we'd like. And so I'm, I'm curious, the second part of this question is just about tradition and how you how you see yourself. Are you in one tradition? Are you an African-American? Are you in multiple? Um, or is that just not even a useful concept for you to hold on to? No, oh, no, no, no. Quite the contrary. I, I mean, I love this question. For one, it allows me to kind of maybe circle back just momentarily to um, something you said earlier, that, that one of the we's um, that this collection sort of gestures towards are the uh, the the various artists and thinkers, um, writers, et cetera, um, historical figures of all all kinds who I gather, you might say, in in the book. And Alma Thomas is one of them. Um, her painting, Starry Night and the Astronauts, has has just been a favorite of mine for years. Um, I've uh, known a little bit about her work for a long time and you know it just it it's it's a simple painting but also so suggestive so cosmic in its um uh in its its possibilities that um i love it i love it so much and so um that poem in particular tries to play around with different ways that I can do in language what she does visually. Um, and I, you know, I like the the challenge of that. I don't know that language ever succeeds in doing what visual art does, but um, there's, you know, there are things that language can do that visual art can't do as, as well. So I guess that that's a fair, a fair match or balance. Um, so that's that's kind of how I approach writing that poem. Um, but the larger question, which is about the fact that a lot of the the formal strategies you might say, um, or the 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 informal <laughs> um, formal strategies that I use in in writing that poem and others in the book are unusual. 
non non traditional or, or unconventional, right? Um, and what how that relates to my sense of myself in regard to the idea of avant garde. Um, I think of avant garde as a term that that gestures towards a kind of unconventionality, but particularly for people who are working in a group, it, it gestures towards community. Um, and I'm drawing on lots of other people, Timothy, uh, you among others in honing in on that aspect of the term. Um, so I don't know that I see myself as part of an avant-garde, um, but terms like experimental or innovative, um, which gesture towards that same quality that that um, I think you're pointing to in the poems, I'm I've made my peace with those terms. They're very imperfect and they have a very racialized history, which is something that I um, tackle to a degree in uh, my book Renegade Poetics. Um, but they and and I don't like the way they they sort of um, privilege that mode of writing over mode that I might call um, sort of excellence or uh, the the virtuosity. This is a way of not saying mastery, but um, experimentalism is sort of put up against becoming like just brilliant at working with traditional forms often. Um, I, you know, I don't like that hierarchy uh, in either direction. What I do think is that it, it allows me to, to find and place my work in conversation with other people who are interested in aspects of poetry that I am interested in, um, that, tend towards the materiality of language, um, that tend towards um, a defamiliarization of language as a way of getting at political complexity or uh, even sort of metaphysical complexity. Um, those, those kinds of gestures that, that make poetry an experience of disorientation rather than immersion or absorption to use Charles Bernstein's term. Um, those are people whose, whose poetry, I, I want my poetry to be in conversation with um, as much as sometimes um, people who create these really immersive, um, uh, completely, you know, uh, I think very emotional experiences in their poetry. I, I, I want it all. That's one thing. <laughs> um, and, and maybe that's a way of getting at the second part of your question, which was about the, the term tradition or um, the traditional. There are terms like universal that I'm just categorically allergic to. I, I cannot find a way to rescue universal from its baggage um, in the literary and artistic context, cultural context. I, however, though I know that the term traditional or tradition has a, has a kind of um, a closing down effect, a, a, a way of limiting possibility um, 
as it has been used in in some cases, it has a an exclusionary effect um, sometimes. Like this, these five qualities uh, characterize the black tradition, and therefore. Uh, these amazing poets are not somehow part of that tradition because they are, their work doesn't exhibit those qualities. That that kind of way that tradition can be used is problematic for me, but I still find myself gravitating towards um, what I see as its as its um, usefulness, um, and that is to to gesture towards. Um, poetry, groups of poetry or groups of poets who read each other, um, who write to or after one another, even if it's to to disagree or to to diverge, right? So it's not about proving that one is in a tradition by mirroring or, or falling in line um, as much as it is these are the poets I read. These are the poets I'm in conversation with. Um, these are the poets um, I want my work to be read alongside. Again, uh, kind of, kind of like the way I, I, I embrace the term experimental. So I think of myself as in the oxymoron, oxymoronic situation of being in an experimental tradition. You know, how do you even put those two words together? Um, I definitely think of myself as being um, or aspiring to be within an African-American tradition, a Black, more broadly Black poetry tradition. Um, I think of myself as being in an American tradition, a tradition of women's poetry. Um, I I like the ability to, to move be, between and among those again, those we's, um, and, um, and yet not feel that I'm ever being forced to choose among them. Yeah, no, that was a, that was a great and, and, and really expansive answer. And I had so many sort of thoughts as you sort of talked us through it. I mean, first for listeners, I'm just really appreciative that you, one, sort of pointed out that avant-garde is attached to to groups, usually attached to some kind of socio-political project in association with its sort of um, experimental aesthetics. Um, and so I think that's a really good point to point out. But I was also kind of struck by the by by how you frame sort of still thinking about um, experimental writing, just because we seem to be maybe not in a high point, but certainly there are a number of really great Black experimental writers working right now, many who are of your generation. And I'm thinking about folks like uh, Tanya Foster or Doug Kearney, who, who you shout out in this book. Both, both to me, their aesthetics are, are, are quite similar to your to yours even in, in in technical style even though they differ quite <laughs> they differ in uh in, in content and concern um and so i think you know i mean and we could broaden that network out of sort of experimental experimental black writers who are working right now and so so on one hand i was thinking about that as you spoke just that there are a number of black writers right now writing really difficult really interesting um politically and metaphysically complex poetry that's interested in the materiality of language, as you say. So I was thinking about that. Then on the other hand, I was thinking about how much of your answer to sort of both parts of the question 
um, is taking up the problem of poetry sort of enmeshment within certain kinds of institutions. And not only the sort of physical brick and mortar institution, but also these sort of institutions of evaluation and, um, you know, all of that. And so um, I wonder if you have anything to say about that, about the sort of poetry's enmeshment and institutions and how that maybe distorts the reception, both of your work or of other poets' work. Um, does that influence how you come to the page? And I promise you, we weren't going to go into any controversial territory, but <laughs> in your answer. <laughs> is, is always mixed up in some drama <laughs> or the other. <laughs> I mean, part yeah, part of what I'm talking about is is you know my desire to um, move away from or or just you know like let go of all of the poetry camps that um, announced themselves and drew their borders uh, with such rigor during the the years before and uh, during the early part of my my own poetry career, so to speak. Um, so yeah, <laughs> um, oh, let's see if I, I, have I lost the thread of, of your question? I mean, um, get, just go back, just, just like two steps. Super quickly, just enmeshment of poetry within institutional structures and how that might distort reception. And does that affect how you come to the page, how you talk? I mean, clearly it affects how you talk about your work. But I'm just curious what that's like for a poet who's been active for as long as you've been active as a writer. That's, yeah, thank you for that. It's the institutions that I wanted to really um, get back to. I mean, the the institution that um, that rises most uh, loomingly in in the way I would think about that question is the academy, of course, uh, or maybe not, of course, but for me. And, um, you know, I think I'm always aware of rather than a duality of very a kind of um, uh, multiple dualities, or maybe it's a triangulation. I'm not sure that the academy and academic poetry can be opposed to experimental and avant-garde poetry on one hand, um, which then sees itself brought into the academy over time and struggles with, um, you know, the identity crisis of um, being lodged at Ivy League schools, <laughs> for example, or, you know, um, uh, being taken up by MFA programs, right? Um, when it still wants to and, and politically aspires to um, mm -hmm. that kind of oppositionality that Erica Hunt and others um, talk about as, as so important to, to innovative poetry. On the other hand, there's the academy and academic poetry um, as written poetry against, as against um, um, what can be called spoken word or performance poetry, um, which is just poetry, <laughs> but poetry crafted with a listening audience more primarily in mind than a reading audience. And um, in both of those cases, I, you know, I do think um, I have, I have to sort of always, well, I don't think I have to, let me, let me say this. I think I want the audiences of all of those, um, those kinds of readers. I, I am, 
promiscuous when it comes to to who I'm speaking to, um, if you will. And um, and so the the way the academy functions to reify those kinds of divisions in how poetry is received, um, it it's it's it creates problems for me, let's say. But you know, I say that as someone very firmly in like instituted in the institution of the academy. And um, so it's, it also offers a lot um, and can be used as I hope I'm doing right now to, to trouble those, those kinds of boundaries. I don't know. I don't know if, did you have some other kinds of institutions in mind when you were well, I'm thinking that. about that. I mean, and, and you, you brushed up on the others. I mean, I'm also thinking about um, kind of maybe not formal institutions, but just sort of sedimented modes of evaluation um, or racialized modes of evaluation or certain kind of pattern ways of talking about poetry and writing and how those get, um, yeah, how those become, you know, hegemonic in ways that to me it seems can can lessen the sort of field of possibility for writers yeah and so i was curious about you if you bring all of that to the page as someone who is so versed in in multiple areas of sort of american poetry right you are in the academy but you also sort of move in and out of it um i just wonder what that means for a poet sitting down to write in 2023 right where it's like now poetry seems to have this incredible market machine behind it um but that that has come with a set of rubrics and modes of attention that seem to me sometimes uh, antagonistic to to the actual act of creating interesting poetry. Um, and so, yeah, I was just curious about for you, you know, when you sit down to write, you know, I mean, that's also where I think the tradition question comes from, right? Who are you speaking to? Who speaks to you? You know, who do you hear? You know, if you're not even trying to listen to anything, you know, what voices are just flitting through the mind? Um, right, right, yeah, right. So I think they're all kind of related. These questions, um, they are, and I mean, you you definitely have me thinking. I mean, one of the things that I have written about, you know, just sort of uh, ephemeral essays um, on like Poetry Foundation website and and other places is is audience, which a lot of poets don't like to talk about, but I I find thinking about audience a way of um, I find it generative rather than limiting um, because it it's a it's a form of constraint, which is exactly what your question is getting at, right? You know, like um, the publishing industry um, and the the circuits or scenes of poetry that we think of. Um, they they're set up to help people find their audiences and and for audiences to find their poets but they also um occlude like what else is out there and and you have to work really hard to kind of um i have to go to this publisher's website to see you know what's coming out in like um, queer poetry or come go to this publisher's website to see well, what's coming out in, um, you know, kind of, um, I don't know, experimental poetry. I'll just stick with that, that term. Um, these publishers publish 
Black poetry, but what if I want poetry by people of color more broadly? You know, these are political poets. They're over here. And you really too much, not exclusively, but you too much have to be motivated and knowledgeable about how to go and find the things that you want. Um, and, and so recognizing that, that it's not all out of malice or um, turfiness that this happens, but, uh, but it's often about um, gathering and becoming and making certain things visible to the people who want it. You know, the, the challenge for me becomes how can I write a poem or more to the point in this case, a, a collection of poetry that will be legible to this audience and this audience that will seem like it belongs with this group of poets and this group of poets um, that is very clearly in conversation with lots of different possible readers and traditions and communities. Um, it's it's a it's a way of showing my my curiosity. It's a way of gesturing towards um, solidarity. It's a way of inviting people into my particular um, we or my particular my different we's and and it is one of the engines for the the formal variety in my work and and hopefully also um, a broadening and a kind of ever broadening scope of subject matter as well. Yeah, I mean, maybe after that response, more poets will start thinking about audience because you just pointed out that thinking about audience can lead to all kinds of uh, formal innovation in one's work. Um, and so related to that response, I wanted to talk to you about your attention to the senses in your poetry. Um, and just hearing you now, I'm happy that this hunch might be correct. But, you know, when I was reading the collection, one of the things that was interesting about it was just all the ways that it asked me to sort of pay attention, right? Um, the ways that it sort of demands that I look or listen or think and feel. And even as it's asking me to do those things, they're all sort of just variously abundant across the across the collection. And so I was kind of struck by that, um, how, how sort of differently the collection operated on each of my senses. And so I wonder if um, you could say something about it. If, is that an exaltation of the sensual or do you understand that otherwise? Um, I know one of the things that I wrote to you is that it feels impossible to sort of think through one of your poems, right? But that, that, that can't be the only register to enter and exit an E.V. Shockley poem. And so I wonder if you could tell me a bit about, you know, the kinds of experiences you want to elicit in readers. Yeah. That's, a, that's a really um, beautiful question. Uh, uh, one that means a lot to me because I often feel that I am leaning on the ideas, um, maybe conceptual or, or uh, theoretical, the... I am often thinking and talking and asking students to think and talk about the ideas of a poem as opposed to just, oh, I can relate, which uh, I tend to hear as an emotional um, kind of connection. But but that sometimes I, I feel like I talk about the, the, the thinking in poems 
to the exclusion of what's also very um, primary in poetry and in my work as well. Um, and that is this kind of like a uh, very visceral reaction that um, that one gets from reading language that is um, heightened and um, and and seeking to to bring you into your body in a certain way, right? So um, that that is definitely an important thread in in what I do. I I think what's what always comes to mind when I get a question along these lines is um, having studied with Lucille Clifton, um, one of the few people I I sort of formally or long-term studied um, with. And she would, uh, in her workshops, after we would read a, a poem, she would always begin the, the discussion with two questions, which I've sort of taken up as, as the way I start off workshops as well. What do you think? What do you feel? And the, the two can't be separated. The two can't be separated. Um, to understand, I'm thinking, I'm trying to think of a specific poem. There's a poem in the, in the book about Ida B. Wells uh, kind of isolating a moment um, in her um, young adulthood which we might refer to as kind of the first moment, so to speak, when she she um, becomes a political agent, right? And um, she's she's refusing to obey the um, the nascent Jim Crow laws, right, around um, uh, uh, train transportation, where she would have to sit in the colored car as opposed to. Um, the first class car, which was also called the ladies' car, which is, um, you know, where where Wells's um, ideas about race and gender come together, right? Um, a poem like that, I want you to be thinking about that kind of intersectionality, that question of um, there's a ladies' car and a colored car, and where where's a where's an Ida B. Wells to go, right? Um, but I also, in order to help facilitate that, that imagining, um, you know, I have to give you the torn sleeve of her dress um, and, and the very put together figure that she was when she boarded that train. Um, I have to, I have to, to, to invite you to really envision it and, um, and to, to 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 be in that experience in a in a in a kind of embodied way, so that's that's just one example of how I feel the 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 sensual and the the theoretical or the the conceptual to be hand in hand and and equally important in my work. Yeah, well, I don't know if you have it beside you, but I, I actually think this would be a, a great poem to read. This was one of my favorites from the collection. And I remember the first time I heard, you know, I read, I haven't read uh, Paula Giddens' book yet, but I've read uh, Jackie Goldspeed's. And I love her chapter on Ida B. Wells and just learning that, you know, Ida B. Wells was out on the town. You know, she was violating all kinds of social rules. She was, she was living how she wanted. 
single lady just looking fine and fly all the time. I just love learning that about, you know, this very famous activist, you know? She's like, I'm gonna make sure I look good. Hey, <laughs> I love clothes, no. I love men, and no, I'm not gonna marry them. Yeah, right. anyway, yeah, uh, just fantastic uh, historical figure. Um, but I don't know if you wanna read this for us. Yeah, I think it's a great, great poem. I would love to read it. Absolutely. And, uh, and I do, I just wholly recommend um, um, Polly Giddings book as well. Um, Ida Sword Among Lions, uh, which gives me some of the details that I draw on in this poem. So the, the poem is called No Car for Colored Ladies, or Miss Wells Goes Off on the Rails. Memphis, 1883. She wasn't born a hero, you know. Once she was 20, four years an orphan, 18 years free. With a passion for Bronte and a weakness for fashion, she might drop a month of her school teacher's salary on clothing at Mencken's Palatial Emporium to dress as befits a lady. She pays to ride first class that autumn afternoon, knowing she looks the part, full skirt, cinched waist, gloves, crown. Boarding, she peeps the drunken white man smoking up the colored car. And no, she's not buying it. Her place is in the lady's car. I know she wasn't born a hero, but once Ida B. Wells addresses what befits a lady who pays to ride first class to drift into any which seat she selects, she's becoming one. Outfit be damned, she resists her ouster till her sleeves torn and the conductor's bleeding. She'll pull these threads until the whole threadbare lie of lynching unravels. That's excellent. Awesome. Thank you so much for reading that for us. No, thanks for inviting poetry into the space. <laughs> yeah. So just kind of going off of that, and there's, there's a pun in the title of this one um, as well. And so one of the things that uh, fascinates me about your work, and this has been present since your first collections, um, is how often you use puns or homophones. I don't know which word you prefer. And what strikes me about them is just sort of how elevated and graceful they are. They're not a kind of low joke. They're not meant as sarcasm for the most part. For the most part, they are little Trojan horses, right? They have other Trojan horses inside of them. Um, they're meant to think about the histories that language can't help but disclose. And often these are emotional histories, um, they're social histories, they're political histories. And so I wonder if you could talk to us about why, you know, the pun is such an important instrument for you. And I did want to say that I do really love your, your poem where I first noticed this uh, London Bridge from Half Red Sea. Uh, it's just, I love yeah. the poem. It's so good. <laughs> and that, that one is just filled with all kinds of like puns and wordplay and it just, it works. Um, and so, yeah, I wonder why the pun is, uh, you know, such an important instrument. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. So thank you for going back to, to London Bridge, which is, you know, it's, it's so far away from me now, but I still do love that poem myself. You know, so I am in the the Harriet Mullen school of of punning, and so I do embrace that term. And um, and and though it gets associated with what we now call dad jokes, and when did when did dad jokes become the word for <laughs> for all of these like super super corny um, uh, jokes that we make? 
You're right. And I, I think you're right that I don't mean them as throwaway. Um, that um, what I learned, I mean, I think you've said so much already in, in just the way you put the question. And I learned very much from Mullen, um, from Harriet, that, um, that, you know, as I say in another poem, language is loaded. <laughs> um, and it's, it's with humor, which is what puns carry, that that uncanniness of thinking the word is spelled one way when you discover it was spelled a different way, um, or um, suddenly realizing that you're hearing two gestures at once. That, that, that humor allows understanding to explode. It allows um, for a certain, sometimes a certain breathing space in a poem, uh, using puns in a way that that um, that allows in humor can make it possible for a reader to stay in a dark, in a meditation on a dark subject. Um, right? You know, it just it just gives it gives room, and it also. Um, and this is this is again coming from what I learned reading Harriet Mullen's work. It because some of these puns or many of them are uh, grounded in alternative ways of hearing and seeing language. Um, it enables you to to create, in a sense, three poems in one, so that a, a listening audience that's not reading along with you hears one thing, right? They get one poem. A, an audience that's reading and and not really clued in on the need to read poems aloud sees a different poem, um, and uh, and then those who who are operating in both registers um, get that that dual layered version of certain lines or, or moments in a poem, and um, I love to to just kind of uh, exploit that that potentiality in language. Awesome, yeah, cool. Um, well, I want to move to thinking about some of the other artists that you're in conversation with, and someone who's. Um, you know, kind of at the center of your book is Willie Cole uh, and his sort of Iron Prince. And so I'm curious about those, how you came to know about them, and then also about the sequence of poems um, that is captured in the beauties, third dimensions uh, that profile 11 women. Um, and what I was sort of struck there was about the balance between sort of these individual personalities and their obvious sort of forming of a collective in that series. Um, so I wonder if you could talk about that. Yes, absolutely. I I was really fortunate um, during the period when I was a fellow at the Radcliffe Institute a few years ago to um, have uh, been present for the kind of lead up to and um, an opening of an exhibit of Willie Cole's beauties, which is what he calls the series of prints that they're related to um, work that he had done earlier in his career, um, prints that were um, basically made of the bottoms of irons. Um, these prints, by contrast, are um, made with ironing boards, the old older metal ironing boards that he 
detached the legs from and then battered into flatness, like like with hammers, with rollers, seam roller kind of things, um, rocks, just battered them into flatness that would allow them to be run through a, a printing press. And so these are life-size images um, that at once, um, well, that he names each one individually, each one, even when the, the ironing board is of a similar make or model, the, the process of flattening them gives each one of them their own sort of unique patterns and, and markings. And so he, he ran them through the printing press, gave each one a name um, from his family or um, the women in the South, black women in the South who were of his grandmother's age. And the, the works are at once a testament to these women who served much of their lives as domestics um, and to the, the kind of the work that they did as not mere drudgery, but as artistic, as skilled, as, um, as creating beauty. Like if you wore a shirt that these women ironed, you, you were put together. You, you looked, you looked right. Um, we will not mention my own ironing <laughs> today, <laughs> but, uh, those were back in the days. I mean, these, this, these are women who could iron pleats, um, who, who could turn a shirt around and, you know, who knew their way around all of the seams and, and how to, how to, how to bring, um, garments to their, their best look. And so, um, I, I was fascinated learning the the backstory of the creation of these prints, um, what he was thinking about when he made them, and because they were on exhibit uh, there while while I was still in residence, I had the opportunity to just go every day and sit with them um, for anywhere from a few minutes to an hour. And each day I would try to to write in response to a different print. Um, because, you know, this is because he rendered them in a two-dimensional form, the visual, um, print, um, it wasn't in any way meant to, to flatten them as figures, but I thought that my way of interacting with his work would be to, um, to reintroduce their third dimension, their third dimensionality. And so that's where the title, um, The Beauty's Third Dimension uh, comes from. And I tried to, I allowed myself to speak to them um, in the voices of women I imagined um, out of those images and in conversation with the kinds of lives that um, that I thought he was he was right he was um, gesturing towards in his work, and uh, it was just it was such a a fulfilling opportunity. Um, New Jersey poet to to New Jersey artist, so to speak. Uh, just I, I I I so love them, and I was really pleased to be able to include um, 
photocopies uh, or images of a few of the beauties in the in the book. Yeah, that's great. I didn't realize I didn't know anything about the artistic process for getting those images. I've seen the images, but but wow. So thank you for that. Also, you know, I didn't even catch that, you know, third dimension. But that's what that means in the title of, of the work. And so that's really beautiful. Um, just really quickly, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, sort of blackness as an aesthetic problem. If it is actually a practical aesthetic problem, you need, do need strategies for making it appear on the page. Um, and so it's just interesting to think about you sort of taking that up from a kind of visual artwork uh, and making it come alive through that series. Um, but the next thing I want to talk about, and it's related to this because I'm, I'm very struck by all the visual arts and the visuality of your work, um, and that you're just so in conversation with the visual arts as opposed to, let's say, music. Um, and so there are a number of explicitly political poems and Suddenly We, um, and the one that I'd like to talk about is Can't Unsee, and it begins with a meditation on the human eye, right? And then it moves through a movie, and then that moves through a book, and those characters move through love, right? As one of the, one of them moves through the carceral system, right? And so it's a series of movements um, in the poem. And throughout, there's a kind of haunting, elegiac refrain of can't unsee. And at one point, the narrator of the poem says, quote, a jury, a judge, when we think violent crime, if we see black skin, history's whispering its old lies into our colorblind ears, making it easier for us to say better that I'm safe in the criminal sorry than to waste time uttering the word alleged. You can't unsee slavery. And this is just like a snippet, but you know, I was really struck by that last line, you can't unsee slavery, but also the kind of perceptual uh, ambiguity of that entire sequence, right? Um, who's the you? What does it mean to not be able to unsee slavery? What is, see, you know, there's just so much. Um, and then, and so, yeah, I guess I'm, I want you to talk to us about the different kinds of seeing in that poem, and then maybe about the visual arts and what they mean to you as a poet, because they seem to be, you know, sort of deeply important. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, thank you very much for that question. Um, it's interesting to me, just as a, an aside, because I think earlier books were very, very engaged with music. And uh, what has happened in more recent years is that I have begun thinking in my critical work about um, visuality. I've uh, been working for too long on a project called Black Graphics that is um, interested in visual art and poetry, literary art that is engaged at the intersection of text and image um, or the verbal and the visual. And as a process of sort of teaching myself um, art history and, and uh, art criticism in the context of, of contemporary Black art, it, you know, it just, it has seeped into my soul at a different level. I was always, I think, someone who liked being in museums and, and um, got a lot out of visual art, but um, I, it clearly, has has informed my poetry in in so many ways. So, um, so that's part of the answer to your question. In fact, um, but I I think um, what I've begun to work through in both contexts is this 
this way that visuality and visibility sit side by side um, in relation to blackness, that there, there are demands that we want to make on visibility that have to do with representation um, and sometimes like just symbolic um, black bodies in the space or on the screen um, in the text, so to speak. Um, visuality comes at that in a slightly different way. Um, just sort of thinking about what the visual field, um, how we how we process material in the visual field, and how race is like sort of inseparable from the way we see as modern people in the Western world, right? Um, drawing a lot on Nicole Fleetwood, among others, uh, when I think about that. And so this is a poem, Can't Unsee, that that is thinking about how those, those two ways of thinking about seeing um, come together around race, that um, there are experiences we have that imprint themselves in our psyche because we take in so much with our eyes. Um, they they can't be unseen by those of us who are victimized or traumatized by certain experiences. And um, those who who learn about us, you know, so there's what black people experience, but those who learn about black people through um, the visual field, and who doesn't, right? Um, whether it's in the the very charged visual field of like media representation or visual art, um, or just the way we see race on bodies or think we see race on bodies when we walk around the world, they can't unsee the way racial, um, the way the visual field is racialized. So I try to move among those concepts and and pull out the problems, the ironies, the maybe the moments of possibility um, by engaging Barry Jenkins, uh, if Bill Street could talk, um, who is giving a visual interpretation of James Baldwin's book, right? And and I loved so much that. Um, Fani, the the lead male character, is himself a visual artist who makes these um, bizarre sort of avant-garde sculptures um, that that help. I was I was really intrigued by how his being an artist, not of kind of easily or recognizably black art, but uh, of these these strange. Um, unconventional sculptures, how how that was used to sort of shape his character, to make him three-dimensional, so to speak. Um, there are just so many ways that um, visuality was working in my experience of those, those artworks, that this was a poem that allowed me to, to be ekphrastic vis-a-vis the film. And um, draw connections to the kinds of video clips, right? That that circulate on social media and in the news that, that create moments when we see and, and confront 
um, anti-blackness in some of its more violent forms. Um, what do we do? What do we do with all these things that we take in? That's the one of the questions that uh, the poem asks. I think I've saw, I've talked all around your question, and I hope I've answered it in some moment. <laughs> no, 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 you you you've hit on it. I mean, you, you've hit it on you've hit the nail on the head. Um, so I have two more questions, and I think I might ask you to read one more poem. And so I wanted to have a chance to talk about some of your pandem pandemic poems, um, just because I was curious about the composition of the book, um, about when it happened about how long it took to assemble uh, this collection of, of poems. And so I don't know if you want to comment on, on any of your pandemic poetry specifically or to talk about how you've maybe were changed as a poet during the pandemic. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm curious about the composition of the book, um, about your pandemic poetry, and then about if you underwent any sort of transformations during that period of lockdown. Ooh, that's such a, uh, <laughs> a big question. I yeah, <laughs> I've gone on the record um, as being one. You know, there there were two kinds of poets or writers during the pandemic: those who wrote prolifically and those who wrote almost uh, nothing at all. And I was in that second category. I was um, deeply grieving from very very early in the pandemic um, and. Uh, survived uh, the loss of several people um, close to me in 2020, and um, it was it was just a very very hard time. Uh, I did not write much, but one of the the poems that I wrote uh, early early in that early a point of the pandemic was due to being asked to write something for a pandemic poetry anthology. Um, my reaction was initially like, oh, we don't have any idea what this is going to be. How can we write about it? We're in the thick of it. This is a ridiculous request. Then, of course, I, I, you know, I sat down and I, I thought, well, what, what can we say? And, and what is the value uh, of, of having a record of what it looks like from here right now? And so um, that led to the poem I referred to at the beginning of the interview, An Inoculation Against Innocence. Um, it, that poem captured one moment, but I also have a poem in the in the in the in the, in the collection that um, that I wrote looking back. And not that we're out of the pandemic, but we're certainly out of lockdown, and for better or for worse, and. Um, and looking back at the year 2020, I I, I could feel the, the the amnesia about the, the pandemic and in its height already setting in. And so that that poem, uh, which is called Pantum 2020, it allowed me to to try to get down on paper what that experience felt like over the long term. The pantum is a form some people will know. Um, it it begin it uses a quatrain structure where the second and fourth lines or the first and third lines of okay, I'm not going to get this right. The second and fourth lines of the first stanza become the 
first and third lines of the second stanza and so on and so on and so on. So it's very linked and repetitive form. And that, it just dawned on me immediately when I sat down to write about 2020 that it was the perfect form for getting at the, the kind of sameness and the during the pandemic. Um, and I really, I came away really glad that I, that I tried to, to capture that. Um, all this to say, I guess the, the larger question was about the time frame of the, the collection as a whole. I started writing it not long after I finished. Uh, so I started writing Suddenly We not long after I finished um, Semi-Automatic. So I was certainly writing it in 2017, writing certain poems in 2017. Um, and the last poem in the book I wrote, let's see, the last year. So um, it represents a long period of work and um, a lot of time for me to, to really sit with that before and after feeling. Um, and, um, and it's not unusual for me to spend five years or more working on a, a collection of poetry, but I think time is palpable in this book, maybe in a way that it's not in some of my earlier books. Yeah. Wow. Well, you know, as I told you earlier, Pantoom 2020 is one of my favorite poems in the book. And so I didn't know what a Pantoom was before reading it, but I do now. <laughs> so I'm grateful for that poem. <laughs> All right, well, my Thanks. last question before asking you to, to read a final poem for us is just, you know, I'm just curious if you could reflect on, yeah, reflect on how you feel about yourself as an artist and poet at this stage in your career. You know, you've just published this book. You've been sort of fed in, uh, uh, you know, I can't even name or remember all of the awards you've received in this past year, but there have been multiple. Um, and so I'm curious <laughs> about, you know, just, you know, not that stuff. I mean, it's great to to be recognized by peers, but just about how you feel as an artist. I mean, how you feel after writing this book, like if you've turned a corner, if you've learned something about your practice, if you're looking forward to new kinds of experiments that you want to try. I'm just curious about how you feel as a, as a poet at this stage of your career. Yeah, what a, what a, a generative and open-ended question. Generous question. I, you know, um, I do think of this book as as kind of a departure in some ways from my earlier books. Not that you can't recognize uh, that they're Evie Shockley poems, if if you will, but um, that the book as a whole maybe has a one of my poetry friends, dear friends, has uh, referred to it as maybe a more public voice in some ways, um, and I. I'm still trying to think through what that might mean, but there is some quality that feels different to me. And I hope it's something that, that invites more people in. Um, I, in terms of how this sits within maybe a trajectory, a larger trajectory, there are, there's evidence in this book of one of the joys of uh, my career more recently as I've kind of um, gotten to a point of really being an established writer um, 
that involves a lot more opportunities to collaborate with people. So there are poems that mark um, or come out of collaborations with visual artists like um, Alison Saar, who has become a dear friend, um, uh, gave me the, the cover image, which is also um, connected to a poem within the the book. There are a couple of poems about Allison's work in this book, but we've done collaborations on broadsides and artist books and so on and so forth. Um, that kind of opportunity has been really meaningful for me. There's a poem in the book that um, also serves as a libretto for uh, a composer that um, uh, who a composer for voice, uh, Marta Gentilucci. Um, she makes choral uh, choral pieces out of poetic text and um, collaborating with her for a piece that uh, he was commissioned to do for the Venice Biennale was an amazing uh, experience. So um, what I love about this moment in my career is that putting, pouring my heart and my mind and my, my sort of uh, questions and concerns into poetry has allowed me to um, to be in literal conversation as well as a more sort of uh, metaphorical conversation with other artists and hopefully with wider audiences. And it's just, it feels like such a, a gift, such a gift. Excellent, well, thank you. Thank you for, for speaking with me today. Um, the last thing that I would ask of you is that you read us one more poem uh, and then Happy we'll to. say goodbye. Happy to. So I think uh, the poem we talked about was Umbra's L. And um, I guess a little setup for this um, is that uh, it's, a, it's a poem that has a uh, hopefully interesting visual component that readers of the book will will be able to take take in. Um, it's a tribute poem to the Umbra poets, the Umbra Society, which uh, was a group of largely but not exclusively male poets um, on who who kind of were based in downtown New York, the village, uh, writing and working together in the years just before uh, the Black Arts Movement. Um, and but working with some similar concerns um, uh, an interest in um, I think an interest in experimentation that was less tied to uh, a particular set of ideas about how black experimentation might look which was what black arts movement poets were interested in trying to sort of figure out experiment in relation to blackness um, per se, I think these were poets who were interested in um, in making a space for the kinds of work, the, the various kinds of work they wanted to do. Um, so the the poem is just made of lines that that uh, gesture towards those figures and their and their writing. And uh, the title plays. The title is a pun, as always. Umbra's L. Askia Toure was born with it. Lower East Side vibe out wilding. Tom Dent raised Black Art South in its shade. 
downtown boy David Henderson walking the de-eternal streets of Harlem. Lloyd Addison's body, rhythm erect in penumbral field. Rashida Ismaili, been in done done that. Archie Shep's free jazz play paid off. The funerary lateness of N.H. Pritchard. Ishmael Reed, cowboy in the boat with Sun Ra on his way west. Lorenzo Thomas, entering all 12 gates at once. Oliver Pitcher, man in some land. Cecil Taylor's agglutinizing bent time, overshadowed. Brenda Walcott, Calvin Herton being exit in the world. Shadow over me, catching rain, catching hell. I stand protected. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure, Brittany.